Good morning, everyone. It's Blake. It is Sunday, August 16th. Sunday morning. Hope everybody's having a great weekend. I'm without Ryan today. He is up to cooler things than recording podcasts this weekend. But I want to jump on and talk about a couple of things um, that happened this week uh, in the economy and markets. And then I will be off to church to enjoy my Sunday. Um, this is the weekly anchor and normally Blake and Ryan, just me, Blake today, but we'll have fun anyway. Um, real quick, I'll get my disclaimers out of the way. Nothing that I talk about here will be investment tax or legal advice. Consult your own professionals with all those types of decisions. Uh, this is for fun and entertainment only. Don't listen to me. All right. So let's jump into it. There are a couple things notable that happened this week. Um, Berkshire Hathaway bought um, bought Barrick. Um, let's see if I can find it. Barrick Gold stock. Way. Let's see. All right. This actually happened in second quarter, I should say, and they their filings that they released called the 13F, it's a regulatory filing, show that they bought 20.9 million shares of Barrett Gold, uh, a position valued at $563 million. That was uh, in the second quarter. So we don't really know what they have continued to do if they've continued to make purchases here in the third quarter but we will find out once that gets released. This is a big deal. Warren Buffett, um, you know, kind of spoke negatively about gold in the past because it didn't uh, produce any kind of dividend or cash flow. You know, it was not a cash flowing asset, but um, what he did here is he didn't buy physical gold. He bought, uh, you know, a gold mining company. So he will, um, you know, be able to, uh, I believe Barrick pays a dividend. I'm not hundred percent sure, but, I imagine if Warren Buffett bought it, it's got some type of cash flows that he's able to collect off of that from the sell of gold. And, um, but this is very interesting in the, in the gold world, uh, because it's, um, it implies, uh, you know, that, uh, that he sees problems with other assets and most likely he sees problems with the U S dollar, which is, um, you know, good for gold because we've got so much money printing going on. Um, we've got so much fiscal stimulus that's happening out of thin air, you know, money that's being created and put into the economy. Um, you know, this is, uh, I can only see this as an inflation play uh, by Buffett um, uh, and Berkshire. Uh, so I'm, I'm very um, interested and excited to kind of see uh, how that goes. Um, let's see. I do, you know, and as I've talked about a few times, I do, uh, you know, a little bit of trading just with some fun money, but um, I've been playing in gold, gold miners and, and silver and commodities uh, recently. So I uh, feel pretty well that uh, Buffett getting his voice behind the miners uh, will benefit my portfolio. So I'm not mad about that at all because I imagine next week we'll see gold open. Um, with some strength uh, when 
the Oracle of Omaha starts endorsing it. So it's exciting. Mm, let's see. I want to talk about California. Um, you know, having lived there, I lived there for four and a half years or something like that. And they are just um, bent on uh, destroying business. It feels like they've just, they're making some wild proposals and decisions out there. And recently they, sorry, I'm just trying to look through my notes here. So they basically, um, I guess a court out there, uh, said, you know, made the decision that Uber and Lyft have to pay their drivers, um, as employees, as opposed to 1099. So typically if you worked for, uh, you know, one of those companies as a driver, you would be at 1099. A lot of people get into driving for Uber and Lyft because they want the flexibility of it. They want to be their own boss. A lot of times they have other careers or jobs outside of that. And it's just a side hustle. Um, you know, I don't Uber and Lyft as much as when I lived there, but you know, I, I would take, uh, you know, Ubers around out in California and they're all the time you get picked up with people who they have full-time careers and they just were going to the grocery store and wanted to do a ride on the way home. I mean, these are not employees. Um, you know, it's people that desired flexibility and, uh, California now wants to force these, uh, two companies to pay their drivers as employees. Um, which is going to increase the costs, um, uh, astronomically on them, uh, when they're already barely profitable. I don't know if Lyft turned profit or not. I, I really haven't kept up, but I know that, you know, that Uber and Lyft are not extremely profitable companies, of, you know, as of yet. Um, and they've had to work towards what profitability they do have, uh, you know, slowly, but surely, um, but this is a problem for a lot of reasons. This is not just going to hurt the businesses. It's going to hurt the drivers. Um, they're be, to be treated as an employee. That means in California, you know, they're going to have to pay overtime. They're going to have to provide medical benefits, health benefits, uh, to whatever. I don't know how many, they probably have a hundred thousand drivers in California is a number that I've seen. Um, many of them work part-time, um, uh, and now they're gonna have to somehow structure these, these drivers as employees of their company. Um, and, you know, I was thinking through some of the, you know, just business consequences of that. So you got, you're gonna have to pay for all these extra benefits that employees are required to have. Uh, and when the company's already, you know, has struggled, has a history of struggling with profitability, uh, that means you have to raise prices. Cause I, you know, and a lot of people who, you know, who are, know that business better than me have talked about, they're going to have to raise their prices, you know, anyway, because they've struggled so much with profitability, but they kept prices low because they've been able to raise a lot of money from investment. And then when they went public, uh, you know, they've been able to raise a lot, a lot of money and, you know, burn that cash to expand their, uh, their, their, uh, customer base and their driver base with the hopes of being able to eventually turn towards profitability. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of people have talked about the prices would have to come up for that to happen. Uh, again, I haven't dug into the pricing model that much, but it's extremely cheap 
to take compared to a taxi. So I imagine there would have to be some correction there anyway, but this is going to force an even larger correction on prices uh, because they're going to have to compensate for all these extra benefits that they're going to pay uh, if they even choose to do it, which I'm sure they'll figure out a way to do it. They're saying they may have to suspend uh, the service in California, but I think they'll figure out a way to make it happen. But they're, that's going to, going to, they're, this is going to result in a loss of jobs because what's going to happen is prices are going to rise. When prices rise, there's going to be less demand. There's going to be less rides happening from customers, which means there's going to be less uh, drivers needed to complete those rides. So you're going to be actually left in a situation where there's going to be job loss. Um, it could be massive job loss. I don't, I don't know what those numbers will look like, but you just have to look at the incentives that the, the government is forcing to the situation, um, there's going to be less demand for it and there's going to be, um, fewer need for drivers in California, uh, to complete, uh, you know, the necessary rides. Um, you know, there's the, I don't, I haven't used Uber in a while, but there's like the Uber pool where you can pool ride with other people instead of waiting for your own, uh, driver. I think there'll be more of that. More customers will be forced to do that for the sake of price, which means less total number of rides, which again means less need for drivers. Um, it's going to hurt the jobs, um, probably pretty strongly in that state. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it, it kills the business model, uh, altogether. Like I said, there's a lot of people that have other like businesses or careers or things that they're pursuing and they would just drive Uber just at nighttime to make cash. Uh, you know, Uber is going to, Uber and Lyft will have to, um, you know, get more stringent on whatever hours that drivers are allowed to, to drive uh, because there's going to be overtime, um, you know, uh, requirements. If they drive too much, they're going to, they're going to be drivers that would like to drive more. Uh, who will not be able to drive, you know, as much because Uber's going to say, no, we're not going to pay overtime. We're just going to, you know, have another driver, you know, do that work that you want to do. It's going to be weird. Um, it's a really bad situation for the drivers, for the customers. Customers are going to pay more. And uh, the only way I see around it short term is maybe, maybe Uber and Lyft force shareholders to subsidize, you know, some of those losses, but there's not a whole lot of room for that to happen because there's not a ton of profitability. Uh, you know, as far as I know, I haven't looked at the exact numbers recently, but profitability, you know, was a, an issue with the story of Uber and Lyft for a while. So, um, it'll be interesting. We'll see. Uh, then you think about just the other business consequences of it. This say Uber and Lyft do get around this problem. Um, so much for any type of competition ever, uh, arising in that industry, you know, that they've been able to get to the, the scale that they've been able to get to because, uh, you know, the regulations allowed it. Now the government's going to come in and force these regulations. Not only will it bring pain on Uber and Lyft and their employees now, um, it'll be almost impossible for a new competitor to come up in the ride sharing space ever. Um, because the costs are going to be so immense just to start the scaling process, um, you know, that that also kills potential jobs. Like a lot of times when we look at, uh, you know, one, one of my pet peeves with, with 
people who look at the economy, especially politicians, they look at it so simplistically. They look at only the first order effects of something. They think if we make this decision, we'll get this result. They don't look at the second, third, fourth order effects of their decisions. They don't look at potential counterfactuals, right? So not only does this affect current Uber, Lyft companies and drivers, but it prevents future job creation in that industry now because it makes it prohibitive for other companies to come into the space. And this is not, this is a very normal thing for California. They did something similar a year or two ago with freelance writers. And I didn't, uh, it was some kind of bill that said, if you wrote a certain number of, you know, articles for a company, they had to employ you, you know, they couldn't use you as a freelancer. And, um, you know, I don't know where that stands if that is now law or if that got struck down, I didn't continue to follow it, but it was an effort, uh, that was made and it really put a lot of freelancers in California in a huge bind. Like I, you know, I talked to some of them that were trying to figure out if they needed, if they were going to be forced to start some LLC outside of California, even though they lived in California so they could try to, you know, continue to operate as a freelancer. I mean, California is just, they're totally set for some reason on uh, the destruction of the entrepreneur and of small business. Uh, and it's, it's bizarre. Um, you know, and it's something like the freelance rule actually helps large corporations uh, tremendously because they're the only ones that can afford to, you know, hire these writers as employees. So small publications and media companies who use freelancers, um, you know, get pushed out of the marketplace. And ultimately, there's just less writers that uh, that are in the marketplace because there's less businesses and in competition. So there's all kinds of effects to, to regulation like this. Um, there's a lot of lending regulations in California that are not elsewhere. That was a big reason that, um, that I moved out of California to start my business is that, um, you know, that trying to start a commercial lending brokerage there, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a mess to even understand, um, you know, the costs, that were required. I mean, it, it was absurd and they, you know, they lost, they lost me as an entrepreneur, not that I'm some big, big loss, but if you multiply that out to all the people and all the industries that are trying to start businesses and be entrepreneurs, especially trying to do it with low capital and not big investment, you know, I bootstrapped uh, voyage and um, you know, I've taken no outside investment or, or loans and that's the way that I wanted to do it. But California made it extremely difficult to do that. Um, and so I moved and started a, a, you know, business in Texas and have, a, you know, we've got a little business and I've, you know, been able to create opportunities for other people. And those are Texas residents, not uh, California residents. So, uh, I'm bashing California a little bit, I know, but I'm just sad. It makes me sad to see the direction that that state is going, that they've become so aggressive against business. Um, they recently proposed a new wealth tax out there um, where I don't, it's, it's kind of complicated to explain because they've got it like scheduled out depending on how long you live there or, or whatever. But basically if you make, um, which I, I was just listening this morning. I think Peter Schiff broke it down really well, but uh, I think if you make um, maybe as a couple, if it's maybe it's 30 million uh, or something like that, um, 15 or 30 million, depending on if you're single or married, uh, you, you have to pay a 
a wealth tax on your wealth uh, above that amount. And that might not sound like a, a, a lot of money, but that's outside of your income tax. That's just on what your net worth is. So every year you're going to have to pay, you know, a portion of, uh, you know, of your wealth to California. Uh, and, and this, I mean, this just absolutely destroys businesses. I mean, there's so many, um, you know, these are not billionaires. I mean, we're talking someone who's, you know, got whatever they're worth $40 million and it's not like they're just sitting on $40 million of cash. That's not how entrepreneurs wealth is accumulated. It's built usually in their small business. I mean, their small business creates some cash flow and revenue and profit. And based on that, uh, that small business, you know, and maybe their house, uh, or if they're a real estate, you know, type investor, my point is their, their net worth, these, these entrepreneurs that, you know, that build some success for themselves, their net worth is not just, they're not just sitting on a pile of cash, you know, and people, especially when people say, Oh, you know, today, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos made X billion dollars. No, that's, you know, you see headlines like that. His net worth, the value of his stock that he owns in his own company went up. It's not like he just made a hundred whatever million dollars in cash that day. Um, and, you know, entrepreneurs are not sitting on liquid cash. They're sitting on most cases, very illiquid assets in their small business or real estate holdings. And so their value, it's not like they just can hand, you know, the state of California or the IRS in the case where you've got now wealth taxes being proposed on the federal level. Um, you know, there's, it's not outside of them, the ethical problems that I have with taxing someone's wealth. Um, the, the practical challenges of, of that is if you're a small business owner and your wealth is tied up in a small business, um, where are you supposed to get the money to pay these wealth taxes? Uh, you, you can't, you don't own shares of your small business that you have, you know, can liquidate to pay this taxes, which for, I mean, again, the, the ethical, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's crazy to me that you're going to tell someone, you know, that built a business, uh, you know, put their entire life into building a business that you're going to f be forced to liquidate part of your property, um, you know, to send it to, to the government. Um, you know, I, I just have, I have problems with that. I mean, um, it's, you know, again, my point is, small business owners, entrepreneurs, um, they're not sitting on tons of cash in a lot of cases. Most of their net worth is usually tied up in their businesses, um, you know, that are very illiquid. So if you, you know, if they keep going in this direction and I know California, again, 0.4 doesn't sound like a lot, but that's year after year after year, even if your business shrinks and your net worth falls, you're going to be forced to pay, you know, 0.4% wealth tax, uh, if you're above a certain threshold, you know, you could have lost a ton of money that year, but too bad you're worth a lot of money. Uh, you know, you need to liquidate some of your assets and send it to the government. Uh, it's just, just, it's destructive for the business owners, but it's destructive for, for the average everyday person like that. Uh, if you're forced, if you're forced to shrink your business to pay for some type of uh, wealth tax, that means how do you shrink a business? You eliminate expenses or, or you, you know, you eliminate 
jobs. Like there, there's going to be job, job loss because of this. Um, you know, it's the, the, again, it's the second and third order effects. These types of things always end up hurting the people that they pretend like they're trying to help. You know, it'll mean job loss. So I mean, higher prices from those businesses, they'll have to raise prices to generate the revenue to pay for these types of taxes. Um, especially if they have illiquid assets that they can't liquidate to pay the taxes. Well, how do you get the cash then to pay the taxes? You're going to raise your prices. So consumers will end up, uh, you know, eating costs on a lot of this and it'll force productive businesses out of the state of California. Um, which we're seeing, I mean, you're seeing a flight, uh, out of California, out of New York, um, and out of places like Illinois, we've seen it for years, but it's really accelerated. Um, you know, you look at someone like Joe Rogan, I mean, just an example, uh, who's, you know, now moving to Texas, uh, you know, he just signed a massive Spotify deal with worth who knows how much I don't think it's public knowledge, but you know, people have said a hundred million and I've heard that it was a lot more than that, but now he's, he's see, he sees the writing on the wall. He's moving, you know, to, to Texas, to a place that's freer and lower taxes. And now he's taking all of that spending power, all of that hiring power, um, and his ability to create opportunities for other people around him who are not as successful as he is. He's taking that, the power to do that to another state and California is losing that that's happening on mass all, all through the state as entrepreneurs are forced are forced out um, just out of wisdom. Like who's going to stay, um, you know, who's going to stay and, you know, build, build their, another thing is California is proposing this wealth tax on basically retroactively. And if you move out of the state, you, you have to continue to pay it for 10 years and it like scales down over that 10 years. But you, if you leave these entrepreneurs that are leaving, um, you know, would have to continue to pay the wealth tax for 10 years um, after they've left uh, because California says they built their wealth in California. And so we deserve to tax it. Um, and that's such a backwards way of thinking. California didn't give anything to these entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that moved to California and built wealth there. That means they had to create opportunities there. They had to create jobs there. Um, those entrepreneurs had to come and take risk there in California. So they brought to California their uh, ingenuity and their risk taking and their productive labor and their intelligence of how to structure, you know, capital and businesses and resources. They brought all that to California. Um, it's not the other way around. California didn't grant them some grand opportunity. Uh, you know, they, opportunity is brought by people to a state or a country. It's the people that, um, that create the opportunity. The government does nothing to create the opportunity. As I've mentioned through this whole rant, they generally stifle the opportunity and force people out, um, or force people to go work for, you know, large companies instead of creating competition. Um, you know, what, I hope I hope something will eventually be the straw that breaks the camel's back out there and they'll they'll reverse direction on some of this stuff. Um, because I love California. I really enjoyed my time there. The you know, it's a beautiful state, uh, great people, but the government's just absolutely lost its mind. Um all right. 
That was my California rant. I think that was all that I needed to get off my chest there. Let's see what else has happened in the world. Um, let's see. Trump proposing payroll tax cuts. Yeah, this will be fun. Um, here's the deal with tax cuts. Tax cuts without spending cuts are not tax cuts. The real tax is government spending. The more government spends, the more its people pay. It may not be directly in income taxes, but the people, the private sector is a good way to say it. The private sector always pays for government spending, whether it's through taxation or through um, borrowing, which is just future taxation, or through printing, through inflation. So by Trump cutting these taxes, and the same with the tax cuts that he made earlier in his presidency, he didn't cut government spending. He's the biggest spender of all time. Um, I'm, all, I'm always pro-tax cuts if they're um, you know, uh, partnered with spending cuts. But tax cuts without spending cuts are deceptive um, and unethical. Uh, I don't know how else to say it because the government, you know, politicians, they know what's happening. I think, I know a lot of them, you know, don't have much of a head on their shoulders, but I think they understand, um, that you can't have something for nothing. And so when you, when you do cut taxes, if you didn't cut, cut the government spending with it, um, then, you didn't do anything. You're, you're just going to have to collect that money elsewhere. You know, even if it's through inflating the currency and stealing people's buying power to pay for the tax. That being said, now people are saying this is a way for him to eliminate social security. I think that's insane. He will not do that. That's the worst political move in the world. Uh, him cutting payroll taxes will not lead to getting rid of social security. Although he should, um, you know, uh, the social security is broken. Um, you know, it, it is already in, it, it's insolvent. It, it cannot continue. Um, you know, we've talked about it on other podcasts, so I won't get into it too much here. I'm not saying we just rip it away from people who are literally living on it right now, but it needs to, we need to start dealing with it. Um, and so I wish that this payroll tax cut would force a cut in government spending and force us to deal with the idea that social security is already, tremendously broken um but it won't and trump will not get rid of social security in my opinion uh, what'll happen is they'll make up for it with printing money somehow they'll just um you know they'll uh you know they'll use the printer as they have with all the other government expenses that we can't you know but that's people people don't understand the government isn't just sitting on a pile of money and all of the government's spending right now is not paid by taxes it's not there's so many government expenditures that already aren't paid with taxes. Social security is going to be no different. What will happen is we'll print the money and continue to pay out that money. What will happen is uh, instead of stealing social security, not stealing social security is a Ponzi scheme at best, but instead of taking the money away from the recipients, we'll just devalue the payments that are going to them through inflation until they're worth nothing. Um, that's how we're going to deal with all of our expenses. That is the path forward for the government. 
Um, they need inflation. Um, the government needs inflation to deal with the debt that we have, to deal with the deficit spending that we have. We don't have the resources to deal with the mountain of debt um, and, and, you know, other liabilities that aren't even included in, in the debt, you know, other unfunded liabilities, um, you know, as they say, uh, they can't, you can't tax to deal with, with the debt that we have now. The only path forward that I see is to continue to print and inflate that away. So the government really needs inflation. They're forced because they're dishonest. If they were honest, the path forward would be, uh, you know, to level with the American public. We need to default on some of this debt. We're going to need to live below our means. We've lived so above our means for so long as a government, as citizens, as businesses, where we have continued to, um, to, uh, consume more than we produce to live above our means using debt and using, uh, inflation because we have the reserve currency. Um, instead of the government saying, this is what we've done and the path forward is we're gonna have to produce more than we consume. We're gonna have to live below our means. We're gonna have to feel some pain and we're probably gonna have to default on some of this debt. That would be the honest path forward. Um, Peter Schiff talks about this, so I'd recommend listening to him. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what he, he always says is the honest solution is default. The dishonest solution, which is the path that we'll take is government printing the money to pay for all these, uh, because inflation devalues, uh, it, 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 it eliminates the debt, um, by, uh, well, it's the best way to say it. You got a pile of debt. You just print the money to pay the debt back, even though the money itself is worth nothing. And by the way that the way that you're able to pay off that debt is you're stealing the purchasing power from the existing money that's already in circulation. So you're stealing purchasing power from your citizens to deal with the debt that you've accumulated with the newly printed money. Um, so, and we're already seeing inflation, you know, they try to pretend like we're not the CPI is trash. If you followed me, uh, you know, you've seen me post and talk about the CPI numbers uh, being extremely rigged, uh, but we'll see more. I mean, we, we will, we'll see inflation continue to rise over the, you know, over the coming years. But my point in all that is the government needs inflation because it cannot deal with the debt or it won't deal with the debt honestly. Um, so the dishonest path is to steal the purchasing power quietly through printing money. Um, let's see. You know, one other thing maybe we'll, I'll touch on is there was an article that I thought was interesting, you know, just me being in the lending business. It's from Bloomberg and it's titled, uh, Much of America is Shut Out of the Greatest Borrowing Binge Ever. Um, amen. It almost feels like a war on small business with the lockdowns. I mean, everything, every decision that has been made has so benefited large corporations and hurt small businesses over the past six months. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, it, it almost feels intentional. I don't know how, how else to say it. You know, they threw these PPP loans at small businesses, which was a, a bad economic 
solution anyway, but it was peanuts compared to what they, what they did for uh, corporations. You know, we've seen the fed just literally purchasing um, individual corporate bonds, which is just insane. Uh, you know, Apple and all these, uh, you know, um, car like Toyota and, uh, a bunch of these companies like this, I don't have the list in front of me, but they've, they've been scooping up all these bonds and junk debt, junk bond ETFs. And what that does is that drives by, by the government buying all these bonds and helps keep the rates down on, on the yields down on the debt. And that allows companies to issue new debt at low, at those low yields instead of what should have happened is in, we should have a massive correction in the debt market. Uh, we should see bonds tank in value and rates go up, um, which would make it harder to borrow for businesses and corporations. But they, we need that correction. We, we've, we've created so much malinvestment and bad borrowing for the past two decades. We need that correction, but instead of allowing that correction to happen, the Fed has come in and saved the bond market and there's a lot of other, you know, propping up that that is, you know, that's helped prop up the stock market and other assets too. But uh, specifically on debt issuance, that allows these publicly traded companies to issue debt at those low, uh, you know, those uh, low yields. Um, and small businesses don't have that benefit. Small businesses need to, uh, you know, need to, uh, you know, go find a way to borrow from a bank or a, um, a third party lender or, or a broker, you know, a company like us. And that's been very hard because, you know, those, uh, those yields aren't bought down by, by the fed. So you everything the fed does creates a worse and worse gap, um, you know, between, uh, you know, the ultra, you know, rich and mega corporations and everybody else. And, um, you know, that's, that's not free markets at all. It's not, you know, a lot of, as I've talked about many times, capitalism will get blamed for this, but nothing, what we're, nothing that we're seeing right now is capitalism. We're seeing this corporate welfare, this corporate socialism. And uh, the more the government and the fed gets involved in these um, you know, with these policies, the more small businesses get hurt and the more the average everyday person gets hurt. Uh, you know, the solution is um, you know, these, these over bloated corporations uh, who have, you know, done so much malinvestment, done nothing but stock buybacks for decades. They've borrowed money at super low rates to inflate their stock prices. Like they need to be that we need a cleaning out of that and allow new, um, innovative entrepreneurs to, you know, competition. They, they need to be forced to deal with competition, but they're not because they're protected uh, by these policies. Um, you know, so that's, that's what I would like to see. Um, uh, but I just, uh, that article I thought was, uh, you know, was interesting. Uh, you know, it, I kind of knew those things intuitively, but I haven't really put it together, you know, how, how these policies are, uh, creating such a divide in the ability to, you know, and access to credit for businesses, you know, these corporations have just been able to, to issue, you know, uh, insanely cheap debt. Um, you know, when the small business guy can't do that. Um, but anyway, those are my thoughts today. I just thought I'd get some of that, um, you know, out into, uh, 
the ether of the internet and that way me and Ryan can have some fresh stuff next week and we won't have to recap all the stuff from this past week. Um, and that's that. This is the weekly anchor and I'm Blake. Uh, this podcast is produced by Voyage Capital Partners. Um, we are a commercial lending broker, not an investment advisor or tax or legal advisor. Nothing here is advice. Make your own decisions. Don't listen to me. Everybody have a great Sunday and enjoy your week.